Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome love. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Today I want to talk about the gospel guilt trip. And what I mean by that is that in an LDS culture, it is easy to feel like we're not cutting it. Often the lesson manuals, for instance, will give lessons that talk about the happiness and joy and blessings and and constant fulfillment in life that comes from doing what God has asked us to do. And we walk into sacrament meeting and come to church and we look around and we see all these people in suits and ties and in dresses and they're smiling and their kids are 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 happy and, and you just think that, oh my goodness, I'm the only one in this world who is just struggling and having a hard time. And then you add on top of that the idea that the church asks a lot out of us We're told constantly about how we need to have good works. We're told to magnify our callings. We're told to say yes when a calling is extended to us. We're told about all the meetings that we have to attend, especially if you're in a leadership position, of all the places you have to be and all the time you have to sacrifice. We're told to have prayers in the morning and at night, over each meal, by ourselves, with our spouse, with our family. We're told we need to have family home evening once a week, that we need to do our home teaching and visiting teaching. And we add all this stuff up, there comes this point where we just constantly fall short of doing everything. And when we fall short of doing everything, we feel like we're just not going to make it. We don't cut it. We're not celestial material. And in a lot of ways, the gospel does give us a guilt trip. Often in the church, we don't discuss grace very often. Oh, it's there. It's in the magazines. It's in the conference talks. But in our ward on Sundays, where we get fed the most from the good word of God, It seems like grace takes a back step to being told all the things that we need to do. And then we look at the Old Testament, and we have this demanding and jealous God. And he's a God who, when you do the right things, he blesses you so abundantly that you have no want or need. 
And yet for those who fall just slightly short of doing things, then then curses and trials and challenges and afflictions come. Now I realize there's exceptions to this, but I'm speaking in generalities. We talked about some of the lessons in the in the manuals, in our talks. We talk about Nephi and how Nephi will go and do all the things which the Lord hath commanded. And yet you and I sit here and we just don't do all the things the Lord hath commanded. We fall short. Today what I wanted to do was share with you a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And then we'll finish and conclude here with a brief thought. And then I want to play Elder Maxwell's talk in its entirety so that you might grasp or ponder or think about why it is that the church asks us to do so much, why we fall short, why falling short is not the worst thing in the world, and what we need to do to let go of this gospel guilt trip. Now, may I share the quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell as he talks about the church's role and for those who feel like they always fall short. Now may I speak not to the slackers in the kingdom, but to those who carry their own load and more. Not to those lulled into false security, but to those buffeted by false insecurity, who, though laboring devotedly in the kingdom, have recurring feelings of falling forever short. Earlier disciples who heard Jesus preach some exacting doctrines were also anxious and said, Who then can be saved? The first thing to be said of this feeling of inadequacy is that it is normal. There is no way the Church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of immense distance. Following celestial road signs while in celestial traffic jams is not easy. And I I think from what Elder Maxwell is talking about here is this idea. And I want to conclude with this thought, and then I want to play Elder Maxwell's talk in its entirety. The church cannot be responsible or found guilty of not asking enough, but rather it is forced to err on the side of asking too much. In other words, when he says, the now this is him speaking, quote, the first thing to be said of this feeling of inadequacy is that it is normal. There's no way the church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of immense distance. Following celestial road signs while in celestial traffic jams is not easy, especially when we are not just moving next door or even across town. So when he says that, right, this feeling of inadequacy is normal and that there's no way the church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating in a sense of immense distance. The church has to err on the side of asking us to do too much. Think about it for a moment. If the church were to say, guys, we've got to lighten up, we've got to ask less of God's children. And then let's say by asking less, some of God's children don't make it because they don't quite grasp what it is they need to do. And they're not pressing forward with steadfastness fast enough. You see, the church cannot be responsible for teaching too little. It has to err on the side of asking too much. And so when we go to church and we're asked to do a million things, and we feel like we're being judged on every one of them, and that the bar is so high that we're just never going to make it, I ask that we slow down, that we consider Elder Maxwell's talk, that we think about some of the concepts that he speaks about, and might we realize that at the end of the day, God's grace is sufficient, that we ought to focus on moving forward, that we ought to concentrate on yielding our heart to God, on repenting and changing, no matter how slow the pace, may we each continue to move that direction. Now, I'll conclude, but I hope that uh, you'll stay tuned for Elder Maxwell's talk.
God bless. May the Lord warm your shoulders. And thank you for listening to this podcast. First, my brothers and sisters, my gratitude to the prophet and his counselors for this call. To them, to Elder Richards and the members of the First Quorum of Seventy, I pledge that my little footnote on the page of the Quorum's history will read clearly that I wore out my life spreading Jesus' gospel and regulating his church. To worthy predecessor presidents, my admiration. Thirty years ago, President Dilworth Young ordained me a Seventy, but only after extracting a promise that I would preach the gospel the rest of my life. His stern demeanor was such that I felt I'd been asked to jump off a tall building. I went over the side saluting. (laughs) Now I salute that same selfless sweet 70, President Young, once again. Now may I speak not to the slackers in the kingdom, but to those who carry their own load and more. Not to those lulled into false security, but to those buffeted by false insecurity who, though laboring devotedly in the kingdom, have recurring feelings of falling forever short. Earlier disciples who heard Jesus preach some exacting doctrines were also anxious and said, Who then can be saved? The first thing to be said of this feeling of inadequacy is that it is normal. There is no way the Church can honestly describe where we must yet go and what we must yet do without creating a sense of immense distance. Following celestial road signs while in celestial traffic jams is not easy, especially when we are not just moving next door or even across town. In a kingdom where perfection is an eventual expectation, each other's needs for improvement have a way of being noticed. Perceptive Jethro had plenty of data to back up the crisp counsel he gave his son-in-law Moses. Even prophets noticed their weaknesses. Nephi persisted in a major task, notwithstanding my weakness. Another Nephite prophet, Jacob, wrote candidly of his over-anxiety for those with whom he was not certain he could communicate adequately. Our present prophet has met those telling moments when he has felt as if he could not meet a challenge, yet he did. Thus the feelings of inadequacy are common, so are the feelings of fatigue. Hence the needed warning about our becoming weary of well-doing. The scriptural advice, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength, suggests pace progress, much as God used seven creative periods in preparing man and this earth. There is a difference, therefore, between being anxiously engaged and being over-anxious and thus under-engaged. Some of us who would not chastise a neighbor for his frailties have a field day with our own. Some of us stand before no more harsh a judge than ourselves, a judge who stubbornly refuses to admit much happy evidence and who cares nothing for due process. Fortunately, the Lord loves us more than we love ourselves. A constructive critic truly cares for that which he criticizes, including himself, whereas self-pity is the most condescending form of pity. It soon cannibalizes all other concerns. Brothers and sisters, the scriptural windows are like a display window through which we can see gradual growth. Along with this vital lesson, it is direction first, then velocity. Enoch's unique people were improved in process of time. Jesus received not of the fullness at first, but received grace for grace, 
and even he grew and increased in wisdom and stature. In the scriptural display window, we see Lehi struggling as an anxious and trembling parent. We see sibling rivalries, but also deep friendships like that of David and Jonathan. We see that all conflict is not a catastrophe. We view misunderstandings, even in rich relationships like that of Paul and Barnabas. We see a prophet candidly reminding a king that there was a time when thou wast little in thine own sight. We see our near-perfect parents, Adam and Eve, coping with challenges in the first family. For their children, too, came trailing traits from their formative first estate. We see a legalistic Paul that later read his matchless sermon on charity. We see a jail John the Baptist, and there had been no greater prophet, needing reassurance. We see Peter walking briefly on water but requiring rescue from Jesus' outstretched hands. Later we see Peter stretching his strong hand to Tabitha after helping to restore her to life. Moroni was not the first underinformed leader to conclude that another leader was not doing enough, nor was Pehoran's sweet, generous response to his beloved brother Moroni the last such that will be needed. What can we do to manage these vexing feelings of inadequacy? Here are but a few suggestions. We can distinguish more clearly between divine discontent and the devil's dissonance, between dissatisfaction with self and disdain for self. We need the first and must shun the second, remembering that when conscience calls to us from the next ridge, it is not solely to scold but also to beckon. We can contemplate how far we have already come in the climb along the pathway to perfection. It is usually much farther than we acknowledge. True, we are unprofitable servants, but partly because when we have done that which was our duty to do, with every ounce of such obedience comes a bushel of blessings. We can help by accepting help as well as giving it. Happily, General Naaman received honest but helpful feedback not from his fellow generals but from his orderlies. In the economy of heaven, God does not send thunder if a still small voice is enough, or a prophet if a priest can do the job. We can allow for the agency of others, including our children, before we assess our adequacy. Often our deliberate best is less effectual because of someone else's worst. We can write down and act upon more of those accumulating resolutions for self-improvement that we so often leave unrecovered at the edge of sleep. We can admit that if we were to die today, we would be genuinely and deeply missed. Perhaps parliaments would not praise us, but no human circle is so small that it does not touch another and another. We can put our hand to the plow, looking neither back nor around comparatively. Our gifts and opportunities differ. Some are more visible and impactful. The historian Moroni felt inadequate as a writer beside the mighty Mahanrai Moriankumar, who wrote overpoweringly, We all have at least one gift and an open invitation to seek earnestly the best gifts. We can make quiet but more honest inventories of our strengths, since in this connection most of us are dishonest bookkeepers and need confirming outside auditors. He who was thrust down in the first estate delights to have us put ourselves down. Self-contempt is of Satan. There is none of it in heaven. 
We should, of course, learn from our mistakes, but without forever studying the instant replays as if these were the game of life itself. We can add to each other's storehouse of self-esteem by giving deserved specific commendation, more often remembering, too, that those who are breathless from going the second mile need deserve praise just as the fallen need to be lifted up. We can also keep moving. Only the Lord can compare crosses, but all crosses are easier to carry when we keep moving. Men finally climbed Mount Everest, not by standing at its base in consuming awe, but by shouldering their packs and by placing one foot in front of another. Feet are made to move forward, not backward. We can know that when we have truly given what we have, it is like paying a full tithe. It is, in that respect, all that was asked. The widow who cast in her two mites was neither self-conscious nor searching for mortal approval. We can allow for the reality that God is more concerned with growth than with geography. Thus, those who marched in Zion's camp were not exploring the Missouri countryside but their own possibilities. We can learn that at the center of our agency is our freedom to form a healthy attitude toward whatever circumstances we are placed in. Those, for instance, who stretch themselves in service, though laced with limiting diseases, are often the healthiest among us. The spirit can drive the flesh beyond where the body first agrees to go. Finally, we can accept this stunning, irrevocable truth. Our loving Lord can lift us from deep despair and cradle us midst any care. We cannot tell him anything about aloneness or nearness. Yes, brothers and sisters, this is a gospel of grand expectations, but God's grace is sufficient for each of us. Discouragement is not the absence of adequacy, but the absence of courage, and our personal progress should be yet another way. We witness to the wonder of it all. True, there are no instant Christians, but there are constant Christians. And if we so live, we too can say in personal prospectus, and soon I go to the place of my rest, which is with my Redeemer, for then shall I see his face with pleasure. <clears throat> for then will our confidence wax strong in the presence of God. And he who cannot lie will attest to our adequacy with the warm words, Well done. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming By thy great help I've come, and I hope.
by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. From sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thy now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.